For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Margaret Mullen, who is heading into her second year as the artistic director of Ballet Tucson. Battling the social stigma that surrounds mental illness by focusing on the stories of five Arizonans in a new documentary called The Hidden Battle. I'll talk with co-director Ann Dalton. And artist and writer Beth Serdant talks about a current exhibition called Uncommon Knowledge about changing the ways we take notice of and take care of our physical health. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Ballet Tucson, which has been captivating audiences since the 1980s, begins a new season on Thursday, September 28th at the Fox Tucson Theater. Footprints at the Fox is an evening of diverse new works by the Ballet Tucson Company artists. And seasonal favorite The Nutcracker will arrive in December. Next, Tony Paniagua talks with Ballet Tucson's artistic director, Margaret Mullen, about her vision for the company's future. Margaret Mullen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. You are beginning the second season as the artistic director of Ballet Tucson. Yeah, I'm so excited to be entering year two. Year one was fabulous, actually. A lot of work, but very exciting work. We have a really fantastic ballet company here in Tucson. It is uh, filled with incredibly talented artists. We are presenting wonderful work. And seeing the audience response to that has been amazing. I actually grew up in Tucson and then went to Seattle to dance professionally with Pacific Northwest Ballet for about 14 years. I was fortunate to be in one of the top five American ballet companies and working with some of the world's most celebrated choreographers. And so now I enjoy, one, bringing those works to Tucson for our audiences to see, but also for our dancers to experience and then sharing my knowledge of dancing those works with them, it's, you know, passing that knowledge on to the next generation is really rewarding. Can you tell us a little bit about how Ballet Tucson works insofar as the dancers behind the scenes and what are they doing the rest of the year and so on? What would you like to say about that? Yeah, we have an amazing group of over 30 professional dancers. And I think that's something that is important for me to share more broadly is a lot of people do not know that this is a a professional company, that this is uh, their work, uh, their careers. So our dancers have worked their whole lives to do this professionally. And a lot of them are graduates from really prestigious college programs from all over the United States. Some have come internationally uh, to us. They range from 18 years old to 40. So this is this is their life's work. And I think that is really kind of not understood very much about ballet companies is that this is their job. And dance, that's actually a, a common uh, dancer thing is to be asked, well, what's your real job? <laughs> so, <laughs> this is my real job. I, I show up in the morning. I leave. It's essentially a nine to five for them. And so a lot of them, you know, do other things on the side, but this is their primary focus and they are really dedicated. And they are athletes. Of course, they are dancers. But uh, I would imagine just like other athletes, they have to train, they have to stay in shape, they have to watch what they eat. Absolutely. People are amazed. We have open rehearsals for our supporters and having people up close and personal with the work is really enlightening for them. It is so rigorous. And I think people do not realize.
realize, again, just as you mentioned, I absolutely agree that dancers are athletes. That is also not a thing that is celebrated very much about what we do. Unfortunately, they are so strong. They are so powerful. It takes so much commitment to maintain that. I remember when I was dancing professionally, I would sometimes be physically active for eight, 10 hours a day. And what is your goal for the future? What uh, is your dream as far as this company is concerned and you as the artistic director? Being a native Tucsonan, I do, like I said, love the city and I want to see our company thrive here. I want to see the arts in general thrive here. I see how much they deliver to our lives and I want to be a part of making sure that that is secure within Tucson. I always say Tucson deserves great art. We do. It's not just the major metropolitan cities and I want people that live in our community to not have to travel to New York to see extraordinary things in the arts. And so I hope that, you know, Tucson, we're kind of, we're Ballet Tucson specifically, we're kind of on the cusp of something great. I have confidence that we will get there. We're one of our, I think, city's best hidden treasures. I want us to be a little less hidden and for people to be very welcome to the ballet so that we can really grow this organization and uh, make it something that is a pillar of our community. What is it about ballet that just creates so much passion and love and uh, excitement for you. I, I am in love with this art form. It is true, and I, I think for me, I was a very active kid. I grew up doing cross country, track and field, all of that too. And I remember when I hit the point of I was doing ballet too, and when I had to make the decision: is it track and field or is it ballet? You can only do one. You only have so many hours in a day. Ballet for me just provided just a deeper connection to myself. Uh, I needed something that allowed me to express myself besides just being um, physically rigorous. I wanted to find tap into emotion. I wanted to share with people and I wanted to inspire people. And I think that is the beautiful thing about the arts in general is their power to touch us and also remind us of our own humanity and our capacity for creativity. And I think the arts are so fantastic at cultivating resilience and that is something we need. I think now more than ever, the world is a complicated place and we all need to be reminded of um, how extraordinary humans are. And I think this is a way to do that. Margaret Mullen, the artistic director at Ballet Tucson, good luck to you and to everybody that makes Ballet Tucson possible. There's lots of people behind the scenes. It is very true and thank you so much. We're very grateful for our community support. For a link to Ballet Tucson, including a schedule of the upcoming season performances, you can check out the Spotlight page at azpm.org. The stigma surrounding mental illness runs deep in our culture, and although the language surrounding the topic has evolved, the real change must come from within for each of us. Ann Dalton is a filmmaker, photojournalist, and former mental health clinician. She co-directed the film The Hidden Battle that focuses on the personal stories of five Arizonans who each live with and manage their mental health conditions. The film is making its debut on Sunday evening at the Loft Theater, and I spoke with Ann Dalton about why this topic matters to her. Before I moved to Arizona, I worked in the behavioral health field for 30 years. Uh, then I retired and moved out here, and I got into first journalism and then filmmaking, particularly documentary filmmaking about human interests, human rights, etc., I was running a group under the Independent Film Arizona 
organization called the Documentary Work Group, and it was to teach young filmmakers how to make documentaries. And so we would pick a topic for a project every six months or so. And I was really going to do this on my own, but the group decided they wanted to participate as well. I wanted to do the film because uh, there's so much you hear about the failure of the mental health system and the uh, lack of funding, etc. But most citizens don't feel they have the ability to make an impact on that issue, those types of issues. Yes. However, everyone has a chance to make an impact on stigma. How they think about mental illness, how they think about and react to people with mental illness is really one of the biggest factors that determine whether or not people are willing to access help when they need it. A lot of people don't realize this. And so I thought, well, this film hopefully will put a human face on mental illness, it's particularly the severe mental illnesses like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, major depression, and help people understand what it's like to have a mental illness and what the barriers are to gaining a normal life or a life of quality. And mental illness can be such a personal situation. It can be so hidden how did you go about building trust with your subjects where they were comfortable enough to explain what it feels like to live with these conditions? I did some networking in southern Arizona, in Amisa. They had a couple people they could refer me to to talk with about being in the film. Uh, another person, a parent of a, a client, I just ran into in an art gallery, and she had no qualms about talking about it, but she wanted her son's okay. Someone else had uh, suffered from mental illness early on, still had it because severe mental illnesses are not curable, but you learn to manage them. So she had since become a professional advocate, so she was used to talking. The other people, I sat down with them and I said, now, I want you to be fully aware, eyes open, of what being in a film that's shown publicly can mean. It can impact possibly your employment. You know, it could worsen the impact of stigma for you personally. Uh, I want to make sure you are comfortable with that before I you know, include you in the film. And I think that helped. Uh, a couple people said, no, I don't want to take the chance. But we were able to have five stories for the film. I think that so often one of the impacts of stigma that's not talked about very much is the isolation. Rather than seeking help, it becomes more important to hide one's condition. What did your guests have to say about how someone who is facing this kind of choice might be able to make the choice to get help instead of isolating? One person who uh, was very bright and had a lot of experience uh, getting help in different situations, systems, goes into detail about how she basically screens the helpers she chooses to be on her treatment team. Not everyone uh, is that discerning or maybe has the chance to be that discerning. It takes a lot to stand up for yourself in that arena. 
Well, your your self esteem uh, is is down low anyway because of stigma, uh, and so to have an illness like that and to be assertive at the same time, it, it takes time to develop. It takes social support too. If you have a family who cares about you and is non-judgmental, or anyone in your corner who cares that's willing to stick with you through the journey of the struggle, uh, it makes a huge difference. And it just takes one. So often it seems, though, that a person may be so disinclined to overlook stigma unless it happens to someone they love. Mm. It's when your friend or family member is dealing with these issues that it can come to mean something more than a news headline. What do you think the experience of working on this film might have taught you about compassion? It broadened my capacity uh, for compassion because I had always interacted with people struggling with this uh, as a clinician, as an administrator. In this situation, we were more on a level playing field in the sense that I was there to listen to them, not to fix them. Mm-hmm. And not to evaluate them. And not to evaluate them or diagnose them. I learned, I asked like one person, he had mentioned he had had some psychotic symptoms, some delusions. And I said, well, what were those like? And he said, I'd rather not talk about it. And that signaled me to, you know, not be so nosy, you know, (laughs) because if it were me, I probably wouldn't want to talk about it either. You want to put those things in the past if you don't have to deal with them in the present. Yeah. So that was one aspect of learning and and I didn't have the the pressure myself of having to evaluate or judge or treat. And so it was much easier for me to just be the um the documentarian and to appreciate the courage it takes for someone to tell their story. One person in the film says, if we could just talk about it, things would be so much better. Ann Dalton is the co-director of The Hidden Battle. The film was screened at the Loft Cinema on Sunday, September 24th at 7 p.m., followed by a panel discussion including a psychiatrist, an advocate, service providers, and Ann Dalton herself. There will also be information on how to access local services that provide care. You can find information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Taking care of our physical health is critical, but how much time do we dedicate to talking about it, or more importantly, to listening to our bodies? A current art exhibition that is a collaboration between Roche, the world's largest company providing pharmaceuticals and diagnostics, and SACA, the Southern Arizona Arts and Cultural Alliance, is asking that we listen to our bodies in a more profound way. The project paired 12 visual artists, writers, and songwriters from Southern Arizona with Roche employees around the country who live with a variety of serious health conditions. The creators were invited to respond with projects that were directly inspired by these personal experiences. The result is a true multimedia show called Uncommon Knowledge. Next is an audio piece created by artist and author Beth Surdit called The Mechanics of Listening, 
followed by an interview. This is going to sound like a fairy tale, but once upon a time in my lifetime, I could call up my doc, get an appointment right away, pay him $42 for the visit, and maybe the next day he'd call me, not someone from the office, the actual doctor, to hear how I was doing. Yep, kind of like Dr. Welby. You might have to look that up, and as rare as a talking horse, you might have to look that up too. That doctor was pushing 70, and I asked him to please never retire. At that time, I was on birth control pills and had been for years. I was in my mid to upper 40s, the same age as Joanna, when she noticed swelling in her leg when she took off her knee-high hose and decided to go to the ER, but went to dinner first. The diagnosis was immediate. I went in and they found a pulmonary embolism and blood clots in my lungs. The whole world just came crashing down, she told me. She'd had a cardiac event the night before, had symptoms during the week before, but didn't realize it. The conversations with the health professionals made me feel like I did something wrong and it was my fault, she said. There was no empathy on the impact of the diagnosis and of the care plan on my current life. Joanna is fit, smart, has a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and a master's in biochemistry. And as she pointed out, I'm in this business and I speak the language, but no one was having awareness conversations with me along the way about birth control pills and aging. I was in my teens when I started on birth control pills. That was before parental consent was needed, so I'd taken myself to a gynecologist. The intake nurse said to me, are we pregnant? And I said, I don't know about you, but I'm not. She also asked me if I smoked, which I did not. She told me that was great because the highest risk from taking birth control pills was blood clots, and smoking would up the ante. Good to know. I intended the piece to be just about this person, Joanna. But because of her story, especially having to do with birth control pills, I realized that it was a back and forth. It was this little seesaw of here I am, 18 years older than she is, and my experience when the pill was pretty new, and her experience where now you can get the pill over the counter. And I worry about who's gonna take care of those kids. Who's going to check on them? Because if there are these side effects that can kill you. You mean the young women who are taking the pill now, today? Yeah. Without it being prescribed or without the need for parental um, permission? Actually, the parental permission doesn't interest me at all. It's the idea that I had to go to the doctor every six months before I could get another prescription. So somebody was checking in on me. And each time, as I got older, I saw the doctor, and it wasn't always the same doctor. We had this discussion about, what about blood clots? And I don't have anything that runs in my family that's a marker for that. It was just known that you're at higher risk. Tell us about Joanne and also about how you came to know her. I didn't realize that Joanna wasn't here. 
she's in Indianapolis. So I thought we were going to have a sit down face to face. And instead, we had a Zoom face to face. And prior to the Zoom face to face, what came up was, I want my voice to be heard. Because I think we all have times where we say, I just don't feel right. I don't feel like myself. And we can't pinpoint it. So if we go to a doctor, we can't necessarily give them enough information for them to say, oh, I know what's going on. Or we know what's going on, but our labs don't reflect that, which was the case with Joanna. If she had not decided to go into the emergency room because she didn't feel like herself and her leg was swollen, she had an indentation where, when she took off her uh, knee highs. If she hadn't gone in, she would be dead. I mean, she had a pulmonary embolism. She had blood clots in her lungs. This is a woman who's in the science field. She speaks the language. And approximately how old was she at this point? 48. She's now 51. But when you think about that, and she went out to dinner first because you know it's a long time in the ER. So she went in prepared for a long night. She did not go in prepared to be told that she might have died. So how did this story manifest through your art? What did you eventually submit to this exhibition, Uncommon Knowledge? I've been doing these healing scarves with the Hebrew prayer, Refuach Shlema, which it's a prayer that asks for the complete restoration of body and spirit. And it's always directed at a particular person. So if you, Mark, were not feeling well, I would go to temple and I would say your name out loud when I said that prayer, saying, you know, heal my friend because I don't have a magic wand. I wish I did. So I've been doing these scarves for years, and I've also been doing prayer shawls. And so I treated Joanna as a client. And when I ask my client, what's your perfect day? That's what I want to hear. And there was a beautiful response to that. Um, do you want to read that out loud? Uh, sure. When I asked Joanna to describe her perfect day, she responded with a description primarily seasoned with scents she encountered on a bike path, then added lavender and lilacs as her favorite flowers. Dill was the strongest scent. My favorite part, she said, after this intense hour, my mind is clear, my senses are fresh, and I feel amazing. So I focused on her favorite colors along with the scents, and the view from a moving bike. Then I stretched out the white silk, applied the resist and the colors, and made the scarf. To transfer the sensation of smell, one of our, our deepest and most triggering senses, to fabric is a really interesting transformation. It's, it's alchemical that you're able to do that. When she saw it, uh, she wrote to me, and she told me she loved it. She saw flowers in it that I hadn't put in. I didn't tell her they weren't there. (laughs) (laughs) I was fascinated with the idea of riding a bike through the scent of dill because I've never lived someplace where dill grew wild. Mm -hmm. So this was a different scent for me. Mm -hmm. She also mentioned honeysuckle, but honeysuckle, the color of honeysuckle wasn't in her list of favorite colors. Mm -hmm. So I didn't include it in the scarf. I wanted something really peaceful. 
She'd also told me that the bike path that she takes is not scenic, visually scenic. So it did become all about smell. And also, if you're riding a bike, even if you're riding slowly, things aren't clear. They're, yeah. sl- you know, they're going to be slightly blurred. I've never painted the equivalent of a scratch and sniff before. <laughs> <laughs> now that you have become acquainted with some of the other pieces that are in this show, what have you seen? What would you like to tell our audience? Oh, it's, it's fascinating because it is such an intimate process to have somebody unzip their heart and spill it on the table for you. Because how many times have we, say, gone to the doctor and that's their business where we tell them these really personal things and they say, yeah, uh uh-huh, okay, uh uh-huh, goodbye. Here you are talking to a stranger about things that you generally don't share with people. I mean, I think it was very brave of every single one of these people to raise their hand and say, I'm gonna tell you my story. The way it gets translated also has to do with, of course, the person doing the translating. Some of the artists who volunteered for this have had major, major physical problems. And I think that their perspective would be different than mine. You know, we joke when we're younger that we're never going to be like those older people that do what we call the organ recital, where they talk about all the things that hurt and the doctor visits. And then as you get older, you realize that part of what's going on is it's a sharing of information. Mm. Because, you know, somebody comes down with some disease that you've never heard of, or you've heard of it, but none of your friends have it. I had a really good friend die of mad cow disease in the past couple of years. Yeah. It's not something I had given a lot of thought to and neither had her doctors because it was so rare. Yeah. So it's, and I think it colors, you know, as I said in the piece about the mechanics of listening, if Joanna and I had known each other while I was making decisions about how long I was going to stay on the pill, I might not have because my friend almost died because she stayed on the pill. People who look through this exhibition and look through it carefully, read the short bios of the artists and writers, read the statements of the volunteers. I think they'll be changed by that. I think they're going to look at themselves differently, even no matter how attuned they are. My guest was Beth Surtit, one of the contributing artists to Uncommon Knowledge. The entire exhibition is available online or can be seen in person by appointment only at the Ventana Gallery at Roche Tissue Diagnostics in Oro Valley. Links are on the spotlight page at azpm.org. The Mechanics of Listening segment, as well as other audio pieces in Uncommon Knowledge, are recorded by Kevin Larkin of the Saka Catalyst Creative Collective. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.